Chapter Thirty Eight of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Thirty Eight Before the Face of Buddha. As we came to the monastery, we left the automobile and dipped into the labyrinth of narrow alleyways until at last we were before the greatest temple of Urga, with the Tibetan walls and windows and its pretentious Chinese roof. A single lantern burned at the entrance. The heavy gate with the bronze and iron trimmings was shut. When the general struck the big brass gong hanging by the gate, frightened monks began running up from all directions, and, seeing the general baron, fell to the earth in fear of raising their heads. "'Get up,' said the baron, "'and let us into the temple.' The inside was like that of all Lama temples, the same multicolored flags with the prayers, symbolic signs, and the images of holy saints, the big bands of silk cloth hanging from the ceiling, the images of the gods and goddesses. On both sides of the approach to the altar were the low red benches for the lamas and choir. On the altar small lamps threw their rays on the gold and silver vessels and candlesticks. Behind it hung a heavy yellow silk curtain with Tibetan inscriptions. The lamas drew the curtain aside. Out of the dim light from the flickering lamps gradually appeared the great gilded statue of Buddha seated in the golden lotus. The face of the god was indifferent and calm, with only a soft gleam of light animating it. On either side he was guarded by many thousands of lesser Buddhas, brought by the faithful as offerings in prayer. The baron struck the gong to attract great Buddha's attention to his prayer, and threw a handful of coins into the large bronze bowl. And then this scion of crusaders, who had read all the philosophers of the West, closed his eyes, placed his hands together before his face, and prayed. I noticed a black rosary on his left wrist. He prayed about ten minutes. Afterwards he led me to the other end of the monastery, and, during our passage, said to me, "'I do not like this temple. It is new, erected by the lamas when the living Buddha became blind. I do not find on the face of the golden Buddha either tears, hopes, distress, or thanks of the people. They have not yet had time to leave these traces on the face of the god. We will go now to the old shrine of prophecies.' This was a small building, blackened with age and resembling a tower with a plain round roof. The doors stood open. At both sides of the door were prayer wheels ready to be spun. Over it a slab of copper with the signs of the zodiac. Inside two monks, who were intoning the sacred sutras, did not lift their eyes as we entered. The general approached them and said, "'Cast the dice for the number of my days!' The priest brought two bowls with many dice therein, and rolled them out on their low table. The baron looked and reckoned with them the sum before he spoke. One hundred thirty! Again one hundred thirty! Approaching the altar carrying an ancient stone statue of Buddha, brought all the way from India, he again prayed. As day dawned, we wandered out through the monastery, visited all the temples and shrines, the museum of the medical school, the astrological tower, and then the court where the Bandi and young lamas have their daily morning wrestling exercises. In other places the lamas were practicing with a bow and arrow. Some of the higher lamas feasted us with hot mutton, 
tea, and wild onions. After we returned to the yurta I tried to sleep, but in vain. Too many different questions were troubling me. Where am I? In what epoch am I living? I knew not, but I dimly felt the unseen touch of some great idea, some enormous plan, some indescribable human woe. After our noon meal the general said he wanted to introduce me to the living Buddha. It is so difficult to secure audience with the living Buddha that I was very glad to have this opportunity offered me. Our auto soon drew up at the gate of the red and white striped wall surrounding the palace of the god. Two hundred lamas in yellow and red robes rushed to greet the arriving Chiang Chung general with a low-toned, respectful whisper, Khan, God of War. As a regiment of formal ushers, they led us to a spacious great hall softened by its semi-darkness. Heavy carved doors opened to the interior parts of the palace. In the depths of the hall stood a dais with the throne covered with yellow silk cushions. The back of the throne was red inside a gold framing. At either side stood yellow silk screens set in highly ornamented frames of black Chinese wood, while against the walls at either side of the throne stood glass cases filled with varied objects from China, Japan, India, and Russia. I noticed also among them a pair of exquisite marquises and marquises in the fine porcelain of Sevres. Before the throne stood a long, low table at which eight noble Mongols were seated, their chairman, a highly esteemed old man with a clever, energetic face and with large, penetrating eyes. His appearance reminded me of the authentic wooden images of the Buddhist holy men, with eyes of precious stones which I saw at the Tokyo Imperial Museum in the department devoted to Buddhism, where the Japanese show the ancient statues of Amida, Dayanuchi Buddha, the goddess Kwanon, and the jolly old Hotai. This man was the Hutuktu Jahansi, chairman of the Mongolian Council of Ministers, and honoured and revered far beyond the bournes of Mongolia. The others were the ministers, Khans and the highest princes of Kalka. Jahansu Hutuktu invited Baron Unkern to the place at his side, while they brought in a European chair for me. Baron Unkern announced to the Council of Ministers through an interpreter that he would leave Mongolia in a few days, and urged them to protect the freedom won for the lands inhabited by the successors of Genghis Khan, whose soul still lives and calls upon the Mongols to become anew a powerful people and reunite again into one great mid-Asiatic state all the Asian kingdoms he had ruled. The general rose, and all the others followed him. He took leave of each one separately and sternly. Only before Jahansi Lama he bent low while the Hutuktu placed his hands on the baron's head and blessed him. From the council chamber we passed at once to the Russian-style house which is the personal dwelling of the living Buddha. The house was wholly surrounded by a crowd of red and yellow lamas, servants, councillors of Bagdu, officials, fortune-tellers, doctors, and favourites. From the front entrance stretched a long red rope whose outer end was thrown over the wall beside the gate. Crowds of pilgrims crawling up on their knees touched this end of the rope outside the gate, and hand the monk a silken hattik, or a bit of silver. This touching of the rope whose inner end is in the hand of the Bagdu establishes direct communication with the holy, incarnated living God. A current of blessing 
is supposed to flow through this cable of camel's wool and horsehair. Any Mongol who has touched the mystic rope receives and wears about his neck a red band as the sign of his accomplished pilgrimage. I had heard very much about the Bagdu Khan before this opportunity to see him. I had heard of his love of alcohol, which had brought on blindness, about his leaning toward exterior western culture, and about his wife drinking deep with him, and receiving in his name numerous delegations and envoys. In the room which the Bogdu used as his private study, where two lama secretaries watched day and night over the chest that contained his great seals, there was the severest simplicity. On a low, plain, Chinese lacquered table lay his writing implements, a case of seals given by the Chinese government and by the Dalai Lama, and wrapped in a cloth of yellow silk. Nearby was a low easy-chair, a bronze brazier with an iron stove-pipe leading up from it. On the walls were the signs of the swastika, Tibetan and Mongolian inscriptions. Behind the easy-chair, a small altar with a golden statue of Buddha, before which two tallow lamps were burning. The floor was covered with a thick yellow carpet. When we entered, only the two lama secretaries were there, for the living Buddha was in the small private shrine in an adjoining chamber, where no one is allowed to enter save the Bagdu Khan himself and one lama, Kampo Jelong, who cares for the temple arrangements and assists the living Buddha during his prayers of solitude. The secretary told us that the Bagdu had been greatly excited this morning. At noon he had entered his shrine. For a long time the voice of the head of the yellow faith was heard in earnest prayer, and after his another unknown voice came clearly forth. In the shrine had taken place a conversation between the Buddha on earth and the Buddha of heaven. Thus the lamas phrased it to us. "'Let us wait a little,' the baron proposed. "'Perhaps he will soon come out.' As we waited the general began telling me about Jahansi Lama, saying that, when Jahansi is calm, he is an ordinary man, but, when he is disturbed and thinks very deeply, a nimbus appears about his head. After half an hour the Lama's secretaries suddenly showed signs of deep fear and began listening closely by the entrance to the shrine. Shortly they fell on their faces on the ground. The door slowly opened, and there entered the Emperor of Mongolia, the living Buddha, his Holiness, Bagdu Jijebsung Damba Hutaktu, Khan of Outer Mongolia. He was a stout old man with a heavy shaven face resembling those of the cardinals of Rome. He was dressed in the yellow silken Mongolian coat with a black binding. The eyes of the blind man stood widely open. Fear and amazement were pictured in them. He lowered himself heavily into the easy-chair and whispered, Right! A secretary immediately took paper and a Chinese pen as the Bogdu began to dictate his vision, very complicated and far from clear. He finished with the following words, This I, Bogdu Hutuktu Khan, saw, speaking with the great wise Buddha, surrounded by the good and evil spirits, wise lamas, Hutuktus, Kampos, Marambas, and holy Gagans, Give the answer to my vision. As he finished, he wiped the perspiration from his head and asked who were present. Khan Chiang Chin Baron Ungern and a stranger, one of the secretaries answered on his knees. 
the general presented me to the Bogdu, who bowed his head as a sign of greeting. We began speaking together in low tones. Through the open door I saw a part of the shrine. I made out a big table with a heap of books on it, some open and others lying on the floor below, a brazier with the red charcoal in it, a basket containing the shoulder-blades and entrails of sheep for telling fortunes. Soon the baron rose and bowed before the Bogdu. The Tibetan placed his hands on the baron's head and whispered a prayer. Then he took from his own neck a heavy icon and hung it around that of the baron. "'You will not die, but you will be incarnated in the highest form of being. Remember that, incarnated god of war.' Khan of grateful Mongolia. I understood that the living Buddha blessed the bloody general before death. During the next two days I had the opportunity to visit the living Buddha three times together with a friend of the Bagdu, the Buryat prince, Djam Bolan. I shall describe these visits in Part 4. Baron Ungern organized the trip for me and my party to the shore of the Pacific, we were to go on camels to northern Manchuria, because there it was easy to avoid cavilling with the Chinese authorities so badly oriented in the international relationship with Poland. Having sent a letter from Uliasatai to the French legation at Peking, and bearing with me a letter from the Chinese Chamber of Commerce, expressing thanks for the saving of Uliasatai from a pogrom, I intended to make for the nearest station on the Chinese Eastern Railway, and from there proceed to Peking. The Danish merchant E. V. Olofsson was to have travelled out with me, and also a learned Lama Turgut, who was headed for China. Never shall I forget the night of May 19th to 20th of 1921. After dinner Baron Ungern proposed that we go to the yurta of Djam Bolon, whose acquaintance I had made on the first day after my arrival in Urga. His yurta was placed on a raised wooden platform in a compound located behind the Russian settlement. Two Buryat officers met us and took us in. Djam Bolin was a man of middle age, tall and thin with an unusually long face. Before the Great War he had been a simple shepherd, but had fought together with Baron Ungern on the German front, and afterwards against the Bolsheviki. He was a Grand Duke of the Buryats the successor of former Buryat kings who had been dethroned by the Russian government after their attempt to establish the independence of the Buryat people. The servants brought us dishes with nuts, raisins, dates, and cheese, and served us tea. "'This is the last night, Djambolan,' said Baron Ungern. "'You promised me—' "'I remember,' answered the Buryat. "'All is ready.' For a long time I listened to their reminiscences about former battles and friends who had been lost. The clock pointed to midnight when Djam Bolin got up and went out of the yurta. "'I want to have my fortune told once more,' said Baron Ungern, as though he were justifying himself. "'For the good of our cause it is too early for me to die.' Djam Bolin came back with a little woman of middle years, who squatted down eastern style before the brazier, bowed low, and began to stare at Baron Ungern. Her face was whiter, narrower, and thinner than that of a Mongol woman. Her eyes were black and sharp. Her dress resembled that of a gypsy woman. Afterwards I learned that she was a famous fortune-teller and prophet among the Buryats, the daughter of a gypsy woman and a Buryat. 
she drew a small bag very slowly from her girdle, took from it some small bird-bones and a handful of dry grass. She began whispering at intervals unintelligible words, as she threw occasional handfuls of the grass into the fire, which gradually filled the tent with a soft fragrance. I felt a distinct palpitation of my heart and a swimming in my head. After the fortune-teller had burned all her grass, she placed the bird-bones on the charcoal, and turned them over again and again with a small pair of bronze pincers. As the bones blackened, she began to examine them, and then suddenly her face took on an expression of fear and pain. She nervously tore off the kerchief which bound her head, and, contracted with convulsions, began snapping out short, sharp phrases. "'I see! I see the god of war! His life runs out! Horribly! After it a shadow!' black like the night. Shadow. One hundred thirty steps remain. Beyond darkness. Nothing. I see nothing. The god of war has disappeared. Baron Ungern dropped his head. The woman fell over on her back with her arms stretched out. She had fainted, but it seemed to me that I noticed once a bright pupil of one of her eyes showing from under the closed lashes. Two Buryats carried out the lifeless form, after which a long silence reigned in the yurta of the Buryat prince. Baron Ungern finally got up and began to walk around the brazier, whispering to himself. Afterwards he stopped and began speaking rapidly. "'I shall die! I shall die! But no matter, no matter! The cause has been launched and will not die! I know the roads this cause will travel!' The tribes of Genghis Khan's successors are awakened. Nobody shall extinguish the fire in the heart of the Mongols. In Asia there will be a great state from the Pacific and Indian Oceans to the shore of the Volga. The wise religion of Buddha shall run to the north and the west. It will be the victory of the spirit. A conqueror and leader will appear stronger and more stalwart than Genghis Khan and Ugadai. He will be more clever and more merciful than Sultan Bebar, and he will keep power in his hands until the happy day when, from his subterranean capital, shall emerge the king of the world. Why, why shall I not be in the first ranks of the warriors of Buddhism? Why has karma decided so? But so it must be, and Russia must first wash herself from the insult of revolution, purifying herself with blood and death, and all people accepting communism must perish with their families in order that all their offspring may be rooted out. The baron raised his hand above his head and shook it, as though he were giving his orders and bequests to some invisible person. Day was dawning. "'My time has come,' said the general. "'In a little while I shall leave Urga.' He quickly and firmly shook hands with us and said, "'Good-bye for all time.' I shall die a horrible death, but the world has never seen such a terror and such a sea of blood as it shall now see. The door of the yurta slammed shut, and he was gone. I never saw him again. I must go also, for I am likewise leaving Urga today. I know it, answered the prince. The baron has left you with me for some purpose. I will give you a fourth companion— the Mongol minister of war. You will accompany him to your yurta. It is necessary for you. 
to John Boland pronounced this last with an accent on every word. I did not question him about it, as I was accustomed to the mystery of this country of the mysteries of good and evil spirits. End of chapter.